Ki Pasuk, one may say, in the book of Bereshit, perhaps all in, Ju- in all of Jewish thought, in all of Jewish thought, okay, in all of Jewish thought, referring to, of course, Perek Aleph Pasuk Kav Vav and Kav Zayin. Here we have a very clear statement as to the distinctive nature of the human being. This literature, Torah literature, as opposed to all other literatures, gives mankind, a distinctiveness, a uniqueness, a singularity that's not found in any literature, certainly not in the ancient Near East, and exclusive to Torah literature is this notion of Selim Elohim. Torah tries to clearly depict how the creation of Adam and Chava in Perek Al Perek Bet were apart from the creation of anything else that was created by Akadosh Baruch Hu going back those eons. We had tried to sh- read this very carefully according to its Peshat level, based, for example, on the JPS translation, based on understanding Genesis by Nachum Sarna. And all of his insights, we brought to bear the text in order to come to a Peshat understanding as to what this term really means. Included over here, of course, is that this is the only creation with divine foreknowledge, for discussion. For the F-O-R-E, not for discussion, but for discussion. Meaning, let's think about this. Other than this, it was all creation by divine fiat. Hashem said, and there was. Here we have, Adam and Rishon has the only creation with a discussion of his material base. No other creation is described in terms of material and spiritual base for that particular creation. Man alone is noted that only man alone. And of course, man is given a distinct mission in all of this. Well, look at Perek Alpha, Perek Bet, which we'll come to with Rabbi Soloveitchik. Each one has a very clear, distinct sense that this person has a mission in life. Whether or Shomra, as in Perek Bet, or Vichiv Shuha in Perek Aleph, or the differences we'll get to. Either one of these two tells me that Adam is distinct and different. It's clearly a very critically important pasuk in all of Torah literature. Now, interesting, of course, you're going to point out that outside of Perek Hevereshit, this concept of Selim does not come up again. Now, one has to raise the question, if it's so important, so key, why does it not come again, up again after Perek He? Perek He and Perek Tet. Perek He and Perek Tet are the only other references to Selim in the entire Tanakh. But okay, we'll come back to that point. Right now, we want to understand the history of this concept in Torah literature from Torah and beyond. Beyond means ranging from Talmudic, medieval, and certainly modern Pashanut literature. The more that you study, the more aware you become of how important interpretation is to the entire endeavor of Torah literature. Interesting, of course, is that Pashanut itself is what brought Spinoza to a very severe critique of Torah literature because he says, when you said, that's what it says, that's not what it says. He was a Pashtan. What does the Torah say? When you read the Torah, a people should you have a lot of strange ideas, obviously enough. You have a lot of noble and wonderful ideas. But the notion of Yedah all those concepts are very alien to our thinking. So we reinterpret them away. Correct? Obviously, as a question, it works. Any problem that we have in the text, we interpret away. We don't have to sit and worry about it. Just say, it doesn't mean that. Does not mean kastat kapat. Does not mean kastat kapat. Does not mean that whatsoever. Does not, does not mean ayin tahat ayin. Any problem, any issue that we cannot get away with on whatever level, we just interpret it away and that's the end of it. Spinoza is very upset about that. The Rambam was exactly the opposite. 
the Rambam was somebody who said, I'm very comfortable with reinterpretation. And therefore, whatever did not fit well to his philosophical scheme, he reinterpreted it. For example, what does it mean by chapter 6? Literally, the sons of God had seen the women, that they're very beautiful, and therefore did what happened. So how can we talk about B'nai Elohim? So we have to reinterpret that. What's the pshat? Are you reading into it? First of all, Elohim could be a dual meaning. Does the word have a dual meaning? Why would a literature use dual meaning to a word consciously? Unless it wants to confuse. Generally speaking, one would say, although you're correct, that the word Elohim means something specific. Language has a specific meaning. This word means table. I don't do anything to a table. This is a human being. One understanding of it. Now, it's interesting, when, if there is a dual meaning to something, why did that happen when it developed? Dual meaning might have been an interpretation. In other words, what Eli is coming up with is something called inner biblical exegesis. What does that mean? It means that the process of interpretation did not begin with the first reader of the text as it was completed, but rather with whom? With, with an earlier reader. You know what I mean by that? Mm-hmm. Meaning that not the first who read the text, but the text itself is self-commenting on the text, saying, I can't live with this, and I'm going to reinterpret the word. Inner biblical exegesis is a recent phenomenon that Michael Fishman and others have brought to light. We may have read about four years ago one article of Michael Fishman on this particular topic, because we can't live with A, so we ended up inner biblically reinterpreting it. In other words, if we went back to, let's say, the very first layer, once the Torah text is complete, Tanakh text is complete, what does the Tanbum Ankelos say about B'nai Elohim? B'nai Rav Raviyah, men of great stature, men of great power. So that's the first level touch, but maybe even perhaps before that, an Avi, let's say, was not comfortable with this reading, and therefore he used the word Elohim. Well, what does Elohim really mean? Alam, Alaslav Ben is the root. It means stature, means power. Power is probably the best understanding of the word. So really, translated perhaps, it means best almighty, or in the term Elohim, or it may mean <coughs> men who are powerful. So you have to understand what we're talking about in Pidek Vav. So, interpretation of whatever level it happens, Poketov, the seal. Whatever level it happens, one has to realize there's a problem in the Pasuk that we want to solve. We have to solve this problem over here. So that we want to see how this very critical key Pasuk called Salem and Lokim has fared as a history of this idea. I'm saying it's critical. Where did it go from here? Good. We had seen it at that level. Now, what we chose to do is to work in reverse. Work in reverse means instead of going from the ancient to the modern, which is the chronological sequence that one should follow over here, I want to go in reverse. You could think about, as we go along, why I chose to go in reverse rather than go in the pro- appropriate, proper chronological sequence. Any, any initial ideas? What do I gain by going in reverse? Meaning, I want to take modern commentaries and then work my way backwards. I think it's more difficult. You get, is, is building stones are, are weakened that way. That's true, but, that's correct, but, what do I gain by it? That's what I lose. It. What do I gain by it? What do I have to get you out of? What do I have to tr- Right. Meaning, I am concerned that you are so trained to think Talmudically and medievally. True. Thank you. Bing. Right. <laughs> that we want to try to get a fresh reading of this. It's very difficult. Sometimes people are so trained to read a certain fashion because we're good rabbinic Jews that we never get the core reading of it. 
So we're going to work within a certain framework, of course. We're not going to go outside the framework, although Pshat might be outside the framework. That's something that one has to discuss and, dis- and think about. Is a Pshat reading outside the framework or not? Sometimes it may be. As for example, Kashrut Kapa, cut off her hand, Ayn Tahat Ayn, is out of the framework. That's correct. Or, V'yadaka B'fanav. What do I have the Pasuk? V'yadaka spit in his face. Yibu V'halitza. Right? So, does she really do that? No, of course not. Sorry? Before his face. Correct. So, the Talmudic commentary is before his face. Or, Moti Shemra. Right? Moti Shemra. We know the story of the Moti Shemra. She's accused of infidelity while she's already engaged to the person. So, what happens at that point? Ve'otzi'u et dameha. Simlat dameha. What does that mean? Bring out the, the sheet. The sheet. Bring out the sheet of what? Of the initial proof that she is that she was in fact a betulah when she got married. Right, we're a mixed company here, so I'm trying to be a little right. Judah, are you on the same page as this? What page are you up to? Good. Okay. So we'll think about right. So there also. So of course, Talmudically, we don't do that. Talmudically, we don't say that there's a sheet that's full of this red stuff that we end up bringing out. We don't do that. What do we do? We prove her chastity. So now, where does the pshat come in and the commentary come in? The pshat is out of the box. We don't, we don't accept it as what the meaning really is. In any of these cases, we have to go beyond the pshat. So the Talmud does that for us. Wonderful. But, if you go all the way back to the pshat levels and we're understanding it, then you're out of the box. So we're not going to go out of the box. We want to try to see, to jar you into a completely new reading of this. And to show you what are the possibilities, and then we'll end up back where we, where Eli wants to be, because he's not secure, just floating around in modern biblical commentary. He's very secure. He needs to be rooted in, in, basically, Talmud, rabbinic Judaism. He's a good rabbinic Jew. So once we root over there, then we'll go further. We're going to go backwards and jar a bit in order to get back to what Sinulokim really mean. Okay, so we're on the same page. We understand what we're trying to do now. Correct? Good. So now, <clears throat> what you had read for homework is an extraordinary essay written about 30 years ago, 40 years ago. And it's interesting that Rabbi Greenberg is going to do a wedding here in two weeks with Rabbi Haskell Lukstein, which is a very wonderful... Rabbi Greenberg is the one who lost his son in Israel you know, in a, about two weeks ago in a car accident. Terrible, terrible, terrible story. And um, he's going to be here. And he's, he's a person that taught at Wash University, was at Rabbi Riverdale Jewish Center in, in Manhattan, in Riverdale, and has made a tremendous impact. It's amazing how one person's... And he's a brilliant person, you know, just a PhD, Harvard and all that stuff, just a brilliant person, could make an impact on, on on Torah Judaism. 30 years ago, I don't know if it's earlier than that, but 30 years ago, I read this article, and it was extraordinary how he had captured the essence of this pasuk and had developed it into literally a life principle. Astounding how he did this. And it didn't capture everybody but it captured enough for it to become the cornerstone of Jewish philosophy in the modern world. Right? And, of course, what's interesting about this is that he says to you, and he said this when he spoke about this 35, 30, 35 years ago, he had said to us, it's not his idea. It's a biblical idea that has been ignored for some strange reason. Number one. Number two, it was resurrected by Rabbi Belkin in a book called In His Image, which is a wonderful book that everybody should read. And what Rabbi, the subtitle is The Rabbinic Understanding of Man. The Rabbinic Understanding of Man in His Image. 
And he showed where this halakhically applies to numerous different areas. The book was published, and that was it. It's out of print, one cannot get any longer. I had a hard time getting my copy from it. Fantastic book, Amos by Samuel Belkin, which gives you all the halachic places. This is where we go back to Eli's rabbinic stuff, where this, in his image book, applies. Where in his image, Sinem Elohim applies halachically. Do something or don't do something because you are in his image. Example given. Rabbinically, because Eli, I don't want him to flow too far afield. I am required to return a lost item. Let's say I found his water gun. You lost it already? You're right. Oh, I want to check you lose for a second. Lose, you lost it? Lose it. Tell me, you lost, tell him, you lost it? He lost it. Okay, lost it. Let's say his dad found it. What is his father's obligation regarding that water gun? Those what I tell you. You must return it. Misfat Aseh, Book of Devarim, Pashakit Aseh, that you must return his water gun. Exactly. I must stay with it. Till you identify the person. Vashivota, Lo, Lo Tuchalit Alem. You are not able to disappear yourself from this mitzvah. You must return this lost item. Somebody found gold cufflings in the mikveh, right? From Rosh Hashanah time, Yom Kippur time. They brought it in, put up a sign. I had to keep it. I mean, do I want to worry about these two gold cufflings? I don't even wear cufflings, right? So what do I do with cufflings? Keep the key of the cufflings until somebody called. One guy called. The round, these are square. Okay, you're not the person. So you also lost cufflings. So finally, last week, somebody called. I don't think I picked it up yet. But it's a great opportunity to do the mitzvah. I'm going to return a lost item to a person. Right? Good. Let's say the found item was in a muddy field. It rained, stormed, and I see somebody's wallet in a muddy field. I see somebody's uh, car stuck in the muddy field. I see somebody's donkey in the muddy field. Am I obligated to do the mitzvah? It's in a muddy field. So I, do I have to bring back his lost item or not? So what's your answer? Depends on your level of... Uh... Good. It depends on your level of... Your self-awareness of your importance. No, well, well, created. Well, well, delicate. You, know, you, don't, you don't want to get yourself all dirty. That's not good enough, really, but you're on the right track. So, so it's amazing how... Um, sorry? Not eagerness. No, no, no. Of dignity, of self-worth, of appreciation. Not worth it. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, that's it. To get yourself dirty to save that item. Right. Now here we have exactly good. Good. So now I have now I have two variables. What's the item worth, and what am I worth? And it could be the case that the Torah law is overridden, perhaps. By my awareness of my kavod haberiot. I'm a dignified human being. I don't slop around in the mud. I might if it were a... Uh, what do you like? Nintendo? Yeah, if it was a Nintendo game, maybe I would. He certainly would. We may do it together. So I have to return his item. On the other hand, if, if it's not, if it's below my level of kavod haberiot, I don't have to do it. It's an amazing halakha. Kavod haberiot, in that context, overrides biblical... Mandate of returning a lost item because it's not kavod for you. Interesting in many many contexts this applies to. Why is it? Um, why must one shower appropriately? Because it's dignified. To be clean. You are not as a non-clean person would be inappropriate, not befitting. It's if you weren't to take a shower every day in our culture. In other cultures and other contexts, took a shower once a week, once a month. Different story. That would not be 
below your dignity. So Kavod HaBeriyot, Tzermin Elohim, plays a very strong halachic role in the rabbinic tradition, right? Which Eli's pointing to. And yet, also it was very fully explored by Rabbi Belkin, but it didn't really make the same kind of impact as Rabbi Greenberg did. It's an interesting reason why. Because Rabbi Belkin didn't teach. His book... He's the university. So he didn't teach. He ran the university, wrote this book, and the book is on the shelves, and nobody really ever quoted it, didn't get any place. It's amazing. They didn't use it in their studies? Wow. Not at all. No, I was there you know, for, for seven, eight years, never even mentioned. I had to really really sneak it out of some place to try to get a copy of it. If you want to watch, you could borrow it. No, 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 no. It's worth waiting. Yeah, get for okay. I need that one back soon, about two weeks. Okay, I'll get, I'll get it back. Billy and I'll bring it back next week. No, not two weeks you have. I don't know what you're saying. Okay. So... Now, on the other hand, Rabbi Greenberg was a teacher. So now, in 20 years of teaching, how many students did he see? So 50 students a year, 50 students a year, right? So 20 times a year, plus in a shul. So the idea got out. So he's known, and of course, I'm a very big representative of this idea that Sen Melukim is not my idea. It wasn't Rabbi Greenberg's, it wasn't even Robert Belkin's, it was a Tonaz idea. But we made it the cornerstone, because it was so impactful of an idea, where the cornerstone of our Torah observance and awareness and philosophical approach too. Right? And you've heard it post in the shul, you've been here recently, but for 20 years I've talked this idea. So this idea has been for, let's say for, let's say you had 50, 60, 60, 2, 3,000 students over the course of 20, 25, 30, 40 years. Now it's even more, now it's 35, 40 years. 5,000 students. And of those 5,000, half made it the cornerstone of their teaching. So now, and they've taught another 5,000 students. So you have 25,000 students all have seen this idea as the cornerstone. It's that powerful of an idea. It's interesting because I've always thought that the written word is more enduring. They will have to write something because I don't want to pass through this world without having left an enduring mark. So what would be my mark? I have to write something. So you write a thesis, write an article, I have to write something. It's going to be something people are going to still read. On the other hand, now I'm realizing more that the oral word may be more powerful than the written word. Because most people read something and they just put it aside if they read it. Right? Your book is published, it comes, it goes, what does it mean? A book like Understanding Genesis, which now is, let's say, 25 to 30 years old, still is impactful, still is in print. It's astounding. The source by Mitchell still is in print. It's astounding. Still there. People are still concerned about that. Sorry? Extraordinary. Yeah, it's an extraordinary book. So that still is out there. That still is being used. So you're still impacting way beyond. Look at the Rambam, a thousand years later. Still impacting way beyond. So there's something very important about the written word, no doubt. But the old world may have a lot of diffusion, a lot of diffusion of impact than simply the the written word. So it's an interesting interplay. So, so hopefully. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, yeah, that is the reason. Right. Correct. Why it wasn't written? Correct. Yeah. Good point. Good point. So this article goes back 25 or 30 years ago, and it's the application, as you see from the title of the article, of this concept to solve contemporary problems. If anybody wants to read the rest of it, I only gave you the first two pages because it's talking about cinema. If you want to read the rest of it, it's all fascinating. Where, in fact, in the 60s, which is 40 years ago, actually, in the 60s, where this, when this was first published, how to utilize this concept as a value system to solve contemporary problems. So, of course, he begins, and we'll see whether he goes beyond the Pshat or is the Pshat. And is not, this is not, in fact, what Torah wanted of us. Now, what's ironic over here is that he, as opposed to Rabbi Soloveitchik, is going to quote 15 different rabbinic sources to bolster his case. He's a good rabbinic Jew. That's, that's You're happy. 
exactly. Okay, good. So, yeah. Rosh does not quote any sources on this. That's why Rabban got in trouble. Correct. Correct. So, Rabban Salvechik and he. Now, it's, of course, he's accepted. This is the history of, uh, interesting, um, history of, um, the correct word is, um, no, 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 no. No, this is even 40 years ago, 50 years ago, before establishing. Sociology, here's an example of the sociology of knowledge. What knowledge makes a difference? In what context? Why? Soloveitchik, 40 years ago, 40 years ago, wrote The Lonely Man of Faith, 50, what was it, 66, right? So about 40 years ago. And he wrote at the same time. And he, compared to he, became marginalized. Grimble became marginalized and pushed to the extreme end of the acceptable box of interpretation, which is interesting. Why that is is another question. But Soloveitchik, of course, became Rabbi Soloveitchik. It's the same interesting issue where Rabbi Moshe Feinstein gave Psak Halacha in the 50s before he was Rav Moshe and stayed Rav Moshe. Which means that if Rav Moshe said it today, absolutely accepted, without even a doubt or a question or a shred of any issue. 56, he wasn't Rav Moshe yet. Do you remember by that? He wasn't Rav Moshe. He was Rav Moshe. Right? Very big difference. Where's an interesting example? An interesting example to that would be the Psak Halacha that he gave in the Mid 50s, regarding AID, artificial insemination of donor sperm, which Rabbi Sivajik spoke about, Rabbi Moshe Fox spoke about, and in both contexts they, it was rejected, and therefore what happened? Achamavodiyah spoke about it. It was against it. The was against it. All against it, right? So now what happened over here was that there was a reversal of that pshakalacha because of a public outcry. Today it wouldn't be a public outcry because it's Rabbi Moshe today. And that makes sense in a certain sense because once we know he proved him, he's proven himself, then he's acceptable about everything that he said. So this is a question of where an idea is put to society, depending upon who says what, when, it's either acceptable more or less. Right? The Ramam would never even, nobody would dare think about burning the Ramam today, but a thousand years ago, you burn the Ramam's books. In the Lithuanian yeshiva world, you mentioned Greenberg and uh, Salavechev. Correct. No, to the contrary. Okay, good point. Let's go back 30 years ago. Rabbi Salvechik said, when I was in Boston 25 years ago, 30 years ago, Rabbi Salvechik was still then JB. Joseph was called JB as a term of derision. Right? Today, nobody would do that. Today, in the Lithuanian world, he still is Rabbi Salvechik. Now, what's interesting about this discussion... He's accepted. He's interpreted. He's so powerful. No, no, no. Meaning that you cannot study a Masechet Talmud without his brisk insight. You don't do it. You're a fool if you did it. Because he's, his ideas are so Can you cutting edge. his name in the DMG? Abs- nowadays, absolutely yes. Because he's been reworked. Anything they didn't like, they pushed aside. And he's been reworked the same way the Ramam was. The Ramam was first pushed aside. Now he's acceptable everywhere, in the whole universe, of course. So I think Rabbi Salvechik. At one point, 20 and 30 and 40 years ago, he's philosophy type of person. And we push him aside. But nowadays, his stuff proved to be so enduring, his ideas has to be called one way or another. Now, here's an interesting example. What does the Jewish observer, which is Lithuanian, Yeshivot, do at his petira when he passed away in 1993? What do they do with that? What's going to be their MO regarding it? He said, Gadol Hador. Everybody says Gadol So I can't ignore it. On the other hand, he's Rabbi Salavechik, the JB. What do we do with that? So they wrote a, a hesped of one whole page, which try to cross the line saying to people, he's Gadol Ador, but don't even touch him. And what's happened? A public outcry, which Moshe Tenla, who is whom? 
Rav Moshe Feinstein, who was clearly acceptable to, to that world, son-in-law, outraged, wrote a, a very sharp letter, which is really worth reading, How Dare You, to the Jewish Observer. How dare you allow Nissan Open to write what he did. He has whole Agudah. He's writing to stuck to the top people, top rabbis in the Agudah world. How dare you let this happen? It's a disgrace what your publication is all about. Because what they do, they didn't write, because what he do, he wrote... Something about him, a whole page about him, what he did. He didn't write Zech Sadiq Levracha, which he write for Egedol Hador. Right? He didn't honor him with the proper respect. So he wrote about him, what he had to write, because he is Gadol Hador. He could ignore him completely. could have, but he didn't. He can't ignore him. He's too impactful to ignore. On the other hand, I can't put him on the pedestal as the Rav Moshe Feinstein's or the Bab Shazor Ramzi's else because he has, he's trafed for a little bit. So Moshe Tendla wrote a, a biting, powerful response to that. How dare you? To the whole Agudah Convention. Of course, he didn't get a response from the, to this. But he made a very strong point. And he could do so because he's, because he's more, Ramosha Feinstein's son-in-law. Uh, he's also on that cutting edge. But he's more acceptable because he's closer to the source of Moshe than Ramosha Levechik was. So this again is something to do with the notion of sociology of knowledge. Of course, yeah. Baruch Haba, welcome. Good to see you. That's a different question. I don't know if that's no, true or not true. It's a different question. <laughs> All I'm talking about is, no. is if he did, fine. No, but still, no, but he's still YU. He's still YU. He's still a biologist. He's still a professor of biology. He's still somebody that is suspect, though he's gone to the right. To whatever degree he's gone. But so this mixed feeling approach to people of this sort is very interesting. So again, Lemon Fifth was written four years ago with no footnotes maybe five in the entire essay, he has multiple footnotes. But he's been marginalized. Correct, correct, okay, correct. But because of other things that he'd written, people became very unhappy. He became very much a Holocaust theologian. He became very much a um, pro-dialogue with... He's a Holocaust theologian, but he didn't go that far over. The question is where you really go with this. It depends on how you acceptability into the Jewish community. So really Jewish history determines what, what you place in it. Is it ultimately? Klal Yisrael, Am Yisrael. Depending upon what their demographics are, so to the right or to the left, determines where you're going to end up on this, in this uh, whole story over here. Let's go look at what Irving writing. Now, you look at this, so if you should have it. If you don't, share. So I didn't make any other copies. Okay. The Jewish tradition and covenant of covers multiple of sins. I trust that the person that's Aaron Rodgers, not to say that Judaism is in favor of solving them. Obviously it is. It's not even to say that Judaism is in for decorations and men under the favor and men I'm reading quickly because we had read it for homework. Of men under the Father of the Good and all the other issues which it definitely does favor. I will define the topic covering the two years. What values, key issue, would Judaism stress in its approach to our numerous contemporary problems? And what approaches, if any, can uniquely contribute towards solution? It is my thesis, this is critically important, that it can't particularly offer a value stance and a method. Torah can solve all these contemporary problems. Finally, what can Jewish traditions contribute to the ethical community which seek to bring about solutions? Again, if you want the whole article, show me, I'll Xerox it for you. Let me start with the value stance. What's the fundamental value in Jewish tradition? Such an important question. I don't know how many of us over here in this distinguished crowd have ever raised that question. What is the fundamental value in Jewish tradition? When I teach in Hillel and I talk to 12th grade students, honors, not one can answer that question. After 12 years of yeshiva education, and it's obvious to me, it's obvious to me because 30 years ago I studied with this person and had read this, all this information, it's clear to me. But he raised the question. Most of the time, not able to answer that question at 12th grade, I said. 
Right. Why not? Because nobody taught it to me. Because nobody in, in 12 years of my education ever had the insight that this is the key biblical verse that really is going to provide a value stance for us to live as human beings. Who thought that way? So I certainly didn't have it as a 17 or 18 year old. Although, as a 20 year old, I got it. Because I had him as a teacher as a 20 year old. Astounding. 20 year old, I got it. But at 18, I didn't have it. Yet it's critically important. But every one of my students that have studied, they know this. What's the answer? There's a classic agreement of Talmud. So now he's traditional. And he wrote this because he wanted Eli to feel comfortable. Right? It's all between Rabbi Akiva and Ben Azai. To, as to what is the fundamental value principle of Jewish tradition. Be'akiva says, Love you, yourself. Right? From Vayikra. We have certainly seen this in the original Sifra. Right? This comes from the Sifra, which is the Tanakh commentary on the book of Vayikra. Correct? Sifra. So we've seen it in the original, because I've done it many times in the context of classes. It's a great, great, great mahloke. That's the original translation, right? And of course, I'll quote the footnote. From the Safra Kedoshim, see Samuel Belkin's fine exposition. I'm reading the footnote now. Footnote number one. Kedoshim Safra. No, my footnote. Back here. I didn't do it for you, footnotes. Unless you want the whole article. See Samuel Belkin's fine exposition of the essence principle in the image, Jewish philosophy of man, as expressed in the rabbinic tradition. New York, 1960. 43 years ago, it was published by Abelard Schumann. Not even in business any longer. Abelard, wasn't he a Christian theologian? Yes. <laughs> it's funny. So. Here he says to us, that's Ben Azai, Ben Akiva's principle. However, Ben Azai says, Yesh Klagadol Hemena. There's a principle that is greater than it, which is Bereshit Perekher, right? Zesev Toto Hadam, Biyom Berokim Adam, Nemutat Adokim Baraoto. 5 1, right? It's an even greater principle. Interesting. Ben Azai's view has won wide recognition in the classic, in the. I don't have difficulty with that. With the Sifra? That statement. Without yeah. wider recognition, because if you read, the one you hear all the time, and you read all the time, is love thy neighbor, 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 love we did a couple of classes. It's so interesting. I'm sometimes fascinated by things that happen. Three years ago, or four years ago, we did a class called Kavod Abiriot as a factor in Halakha. Right? Subsequently, those of you who know, Rav Lusenstein wrote a major article in tradition and Kavod Abiriot as a factor in Halakha. Four years after I had started, I thought it was an interesting issue. And about two years ago, Nachum Rakover, who was a very famous... Um, writer of, a, of, a Jew, of Jewish law, professor of Jewish law at Hebrew University, wrote a book called Kodibur is a Factor in Halakha. So amazing how, somebody told me yesterday, when Hashem gives an idea to the world, it just goes all over the place. Now, obviously, Rockover and Rav Hussein didn't write it because I said they had the classes, but I was first. Classes, book, Rockover, Rabbi Tao showed it to me two summers ago, and then Rav Hussein. So the idea is out there now. Kavod de Beriot, what I can or cannot do based on which is Now over here, Rabbi also, as we'll see when we get to it, he has a little tiny footnote where he talks about the same idea, where Kavod, as a matter of fact, Kavod has a dual meaning in Hebrew, majesty, Kavod dignity, as in Halakhra, Kavod 
The dignity is a criteria by which a worth of individual measure can be demonstrated by halakha that bizuyim, a self-abased person, are disqualified from giving testimony. So really it is a very important concept. It plays itself out in numerous examples. In particular, the phrase, Haokhel bashuk domela kelef. Tamudically, right? Kiddushin 40b. And my mind is characteristic an attitude of the halakha toward a man who lost his sense of dignity. Likewise, I wish to point out that the law, the principle of human dignity, overrides certain halakhic injunctions. And he quotes from my, the source in Berachot Yudtet, where what do you do if somebody's wearing sha'amnez in the middle of the, of the street? And you know that his, his um, Armani suit is sha'amnez. What do you do? On the one hand, you should have to rip it off. Why? He's wearing sha'amnez. Rip it off, but he'll be naked. So now I have to play out between Kodabiriot and the Doraita. And go through that, which we did. We went through that whole... The entire sugya there, tradition, all that. So good. So it's so this concept became, of course, a very, very interesting now issue. Where, if you read the book, you see how powerful a concept it is. Even something as simple as how kelev is Why? Because it was violated. So you see. So we read this book, you see, it really appears again and again and again. Not so much as Semelokim, quote-unquote, but as Kavodah Beriot. So it does appear repeatedly. Exactly, correct. It's a good point, right. Now, in the judicial oath, which witnesses took before they were allowed to testify in capital punishment cases, Tamuj was some of the implications of the concept. This is also, very traditional. This is Gemara Sanedinin. Perek Vav. Tamuj was that the implications of the concept that the man was created in the image of God. The implications. The witnesses were warned that if in the testimony a human life was at stake, images of man reproduce identically. If one creates a die or a plate, every copy is the same. If one copy isn't, one has a value post to go, right? But each reproduction of the image of God is unique. This is from Mishnah Sanadin. This is the mark of an image of God. It's unique. Every human being is a unique. This should sound familiar to everybody because I've done it fifty times before. The implication drawn for the witness is since the man is an image of God, he's of infinite value. As every human being is. In this sense, well, this is a minor harm from a major harm. Now, you look at footnote 3, which you don't have. He tells us, compare the Mishnah in Talmud Babisa, but in 37a, see the commentary of today's Israel, Ibn, and commentary of Israel on ethics of the fathers. Good. And furthermore, he says, in the this context, to save human life is the equivalent of saving the entire world. nefesh, ahat, kilo, right? Very famous statement. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I told you because he knew you was going to read this, right? For the record, the final implication drawn by Tamil is that all men are created equal, right? This comes from Sanhedrin. So that's right here, right? Let's look at the next page. One significant dimension must be asked. The must be added. The image of God is to be understood not simply as a given category, but a statement of something to become. The image, of, the image is open-ended. Footnote four which will tell you over here, footnote 4. It's this article that he published, The Bible of the Modern Man, to be published by the World Jewish Bible Society for 1969. Right? So, we don't have that. Yeah. 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 Now, why? Because God's image, by definition, is many, faceted, inexhaustible. God's image is, in, is infinite, inexhaustible, multifaceted. You should also suggest that it's not fixed, but subject to modification. Thus, there are certain actions which extend or expand the image of God, and actually which shrink it. Let's see what he means by that. And to expand the image of God is to recognize, or to recognize it is to increase the divine presence in the world. Thus, a murder of humans reduces the presence of the image of God. It's ma'ata shechina. Somebody dies, you murder somebody, you've decreased 
the phrase in the time was you have shrunk diminished the image of God right so here's all the footnotes if you want to look it up right about the image now of course as good Maimonidean philosophers what do we do with that concept we can't say that God's image is completely sorry infinite so one can but the rabbis were more concerned with the ethical development of the human being and therefore want to say the rabbis of the Talmud and murder less of Shekhinah. I think they say he, he, uh, he, he removes yourself from it. We're talking about what the phrase means. Nitmata Shekhinah. Nitmata lessened the, the divine presence. That's not what the rabbi said. The rabbi said Nitmata Shekhinah. You want to interpret that because you're uncomfortable with the concept. We're all uncomfortable with the concept. I read it someplace. Where are you going? I got to know because I got a really virus who's going to handle the Halal picnic and come to pick her up at 820. Sorry. Okay. Have a good day. Okay, so, so, so here we have thus a murderer. So whatever that phrase means, becomes the way the rabbis relate to the act of murder. Any act that humiliates. Now you have to raise the question whether that he's going beyond what the Selamukhi means. Any act that humiliates, denigrates, or hurts is seen as a form of description of the divine image and reduction of the of God's presence. Right? Compare Tanhuma in Rishitaba. And Abba Vanel and Ethelfarfos, chapter 3. Dirash Mishle. It is a striking comment that Talmud suggests that one should be prepared to die rather than humiliate someone. Well, he knows that. If I'm going to say how we say, which he doesn't quote over here, Mutav Shiapil Atzmo Legushana Esh Vayadim Panechabro Barabim. We know that. You embarrass somebody, you spill his blood. So, what is it saying? Same thing. They should be prepared to die rather than humiliate somebody, just as one instructed to die rather than to murder someone else. Right? Sito Sefta, Sota, Sanedrin, etc. So here's all the sources if one wants to follow that up. Human dignity is an absolute category. Prepare to die rather than humiliate somebody. Correct? Good. Insofar as human being is self-image is a factor of society and the treatment of others of individuals, then mistreatment of humans, physical or psychological, is a reduction of the image of God. Is that true? Do you accept that as what the statement really means? Is what the Torah really means? Is this the shot level of this Pasukim Bereshit? Is the Torah really telling us that if you psychologically or physically do something negative, mistreat a human being, it's a reduction of the divine image. Do you agree with that statement? Is it gone beyond the box at this point? Eli, what do you think? Apparently. I don't think so. You don't think this is what the Peshat Torah really means? You think... Oh, I don't know what he means. What does Eli mean now? <laughs> you have to read this for homework, so I want you to... Uh, because are you willing to say that Torah's real meaning over here is that it's relative only? Really, you can denigrate a human being, those Christian and Melokim. Does anyone want to say that? No. no. So what we're saying really is the, true. The, the mistreatment. Denigrates in the eyes of the holder. That's that part I'm difficult to No, if, if I curse, let's use an absolute. If I curse human being. Okay, no, that, that, then, then it's, uh, it's the denigration of the Sinai yeah, yeah, So then we agree that is what the Torah is really saying. Sinai Lokim is an absolute category. The mistreatment of a human's physical or psychological. What do you mean by physical? If I enslave another human being, let's say. Right? By physical or psychological. Any human being in the world. That's what he's saying so far. We want to see where he may deviate from your preordained hashkafa. We'll get, we'll get. Well, let's, we'll go further. The obligations of society for the individual on this principle apply to all men, all human beings. They range from elementary respect, 
which is a form of increasing the self-image and therefore the presence of God in the world, to all sorts of subtle applications. In the case of a man who is executed for murder, one must not allow the body to be publicly exhibited, lest people say, God has been executed. Is that a Talmudic statement? Of course it is. Sorry? You're right, that's a Talmudic statement. It's footnote 7. That, right? You're not allowed to leave a human being hung. Why not? The Pasuk in Devarim says. It's a curse of God if you leave his hung. Look at that she quoted the Talmud. What does she say on that Pasuk? Gives you a nice, very nice metaphor story. What happens in the metaphor story? There's a king. Twins. One's evil, one's good. We caught the evil, horrible, disgusting person. So we executed because he was an evil person. But what do we do? What do people say when they walk by? There's the king that's hung. It's a twin. So therefore, what do we do? It's another question. Another question. Because we want to show our disgust, perhaps, with them. But only hang them for a few seconds before sunset, correct? Then we let them go down. We want to say, so what's the, that's the nimshah, that's the mashah. What's the nimshah? Yeah. What's the, what, tell me what it is. God's if, that if one were to hang a human being, saying that it's the image of God is hanging there. God is hanging there. One cannot say that. Right? Do we see that? The mashal and the mashal is incredibly powerful over here. If I have a king and I have a brigand who was a thief and a horrible human being, and what happens at a certain point? He, we finally caught him, so we hang him because he's an evil, horrible person. He committed murders all the day long. But if I, if I hang him too long, we say, Kikilat Elohim Talui. That's biblical. It's a curse of Elohim Talui. That hanging person. I'm cursing God by hanging the image of God. But he's a murderer. So he's really a rasha. He's absolutely a rasha. He's a murderer. So why don't we hang him in, in private? I don't want to pursue that right now. I just want to get the facts straight. You, good for all that fun. But I just want to get the facts straight. Now, similarly... I think it's an extension, not just an extension. Okay, better even. Absolutely. So that's the next point. Interesting. When we have to execute somebody because they're a horrible, evil person, right? What do we do? Choose an easy death for the person. Make it painless. Why? Because love met. But he's a murderer. He's a horrible human being. I don't even see this person. And he's still telling him, even in death. Believe it or not. To that degree we're going. Can I burn his body? Can I torture him to death? Stalin? Anybody? What do you do with it? Anybody? That's one of the. 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 That's one because the fundamental body is God's, not His. Eichmann, whoever Eichmann is, went to game, whatever happened to him, that's his, his soul went, whatever went, went. But still his similar came. Strikingly strange. Otherwise, tell me the opposite. Tell me what? Tell me that I can really desecrate the body, let's say, not in the life, the body of a, of a Rasha. But he took the similar Lokim and he debased the Debased, good. Idea. So now there's a person, I agree, I agree. Now, halakhli, you're a rabbinic Jew. Physically also, physically. Absolutely. So now, halakhli, does a person ever reach that point of demonism with such a demon that I could say he's no longer in the category of human being and if I could do whatever I want to, I could torture whatever, he's not a human being any longer. Is that rabbinic? Is that Torah says that? Oh, no, yes, give me, I say definitely yes. I want to, you're a rabbinic Jew, I need a halakhic source for this. No? Not a rabbinic Jew? Uh-oh. Logically, I'm talking about halakhically. First, I want halakha wise. Yeah, 
Any evil person. It's an amazing. It's an amazing point. It, you have to be hadesh. Absolutely, that's your hadush. Okay, we'll have to evaluate it. But with no pain, but no pain. How do you do that with no level? No pain. Give him a glass of wine. No pain. No. No pain. We're not to inflict pain on that person. Halachas, we gave him. We gave him some. Halachas, that's one of the ways that you give the guy a big glass of wine. Then you put the lead down his throat. We have to. He has to be no pain. He has to be drunk, or they give him some kind of herb which deadens the pain. Can I? Can let him suffer? That's that's halachic, right? You know that. He killed sixteen million people. Sixteen. We're worried about. How he dies and what he That's the image of God implication. And if you're not happy with it, okay, fine. I, I'm not disagreeing I think he with you. Is the concept oh, this, 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 that a person can become so demonic? That's what we find that halakhically. We care about the halakhic issues involved over here. Okay, so that's my, that's my question. Let's just finish over here. Because God is being executed. That's the Rashi for the murderer. The Rashi of the murderer, and that's again straight Talmudic. Even the murderer is seen as containing within himself an aspect of divinity. Even the murderer. Read, read, read. And thus we can and should judge Saudi by extent to which the traditions, conditions of life and the human and political conditions of society will tend to increase. Will tend to increase the human capacity to become the image of God. This is the fundamental principle of Judaism. This is the value that Judaism can offer as fundamental value of Saudi. Mm-hmm. Salam is the criteria by which you judge how good society is. So if I denigrate you by paying you $2 an hour as a businessman, and you can't live properly, I violated this value sense of Judaism. Right? If I give you... In- you work seven days a week. Or seven days a week. Right. So, we'll stop over here because we want to say Kaddish and everything else. But, and you read the next two pack, reread this. And again, if you want the entire article, I'll be happy to cover it. But it's... Is it not... By Stalin's getting rid of... We say you can't insult one person. Now, Stalin leaving people. Agreed. I'm not disagreeing with you. But now, how do we classify him? Was he do you, the, do you uh, want to say you want to say that he's no longer Salem Elohim? Uh, there, there, there is a custom. There is a custom. A, a, a man could afford the level of an animal, therefore he loses everything. That's midrashic, not halachic. I want that statement halachically. It's not a Mishneh Torah. It's going to Torah. The idea.